There's a saying we had in the government when you had multiple defendants that the first person under the tree gets all the shade. Stories that she's telling the world about what happened remain to this day to be very implicating of Yen. She takes the tact that she didn't plunge the knife, but she's just as guilty as anyone who did plunge the knife. There were two other males walking around in that house bleeding, and we have no idea who they are. And nobody's even tried to figure it out. It was DNA testing of blood samples from the crime scene done in 2009 that showed two unidentified men bled at the Haysom home. Despite the new evidence, Bedford officials have refused to reinvestigate or conduct more tests, saying they still believe Jens Soren killed Derek and Nancy Haysom in 1985. Elizabeth Haysom has maintained her guilt since her sentencing, saying she wanted her parents dead because of years of sexual abuse. She said she didn't stab her parents, insisting Jens did it for her. Jens has been trying to clear his name for the past three decades, and some of his supporters say Bedford investigators ignored leads and even hid the possibility of other suspects during Jens' trial. One such lead, two men arrested for a brutal stabbing that happened the same week the Hasems were killed and not far from their home. It was two or three o'clock in the morning, the deputy was driving down the road, sees these two guys. Richard Hudson is a retired detective in Charlottesville. He's one of the veteran law enforcement officers to review the Hasem case, including police reports. Those reports say a Bedford deputy stopped two men hitchhiking along a major road outside of Lynchburg. It was a few days after the Hasem bodies were discovered, and the community was on high alert for suspicious characters. The deputy put them in his patrol car and questioned them. The two men said they'd been visiting a girl in Lynchburg and were headed to Roanoke. The deputy let them go. Then a few days later, he found a knife shoved between the seats of his patrol car. No one had been in the back seat since the two men he stopped on the highway. He reported the knife to his supervisor, who, it seems, didn't consider the knife significant. So the officer who discovered it took the knife home and stored it in a desk drawer. A few nights after the deputy in Bedford picked up the two hitchhikers, those two men made it to Roanoke, about 30 miles away. There, they abducted a homeless person at Knife Point and took him to a field where they stabbed him 26 times and cut off his penis. After the stabbing in Roanoke, the two men went to a homeless shelter where their behavior alarmed the volunteers working there. When they went in, they had to turn in all their weapons and they the record showed that they both turned knives in there was a counselor in one of them who remembered and reported to the rona police that they were always watching the news and talking about whether there was going to be any information about the bedford homicide on it. the two men were 22 year old robert albright and 25 year old william shiflett they were from the Lynchburg area, but were transient and jobless and known drug users. Shiflett told police he had a young son and a wife who had recently left him. The two men were charged and convicted in the savage murder of the homeless man in Roanoke and sentenced to life in prison. Police reports show an officer from Roanoke contacted the investigators in Bedford working the Hasem murders. But there's no record of Bedford following up or questioning the two men. And the knife, left in the deputy's back seat, was never taken into evidence. The apparent lack of follow-up with Albright and Shiflett as possible suspects in the murder of Derek and Nancy Hasem baffles Hudson. They were eliminated as suspects. I don't know how, don't know why, but they got eliminated. 
Their names did come up years after Yen's conviction in 1996. Yen's had a new lawyer, former Virginia Deputy Attorney General Gail Starling Marshall. She was handling one of his last shots at freedom, what's known as a writ of habeas corpus petition. She argued in court that Yen's defense didn't know about Chiflet and Albright as possible alternative suspects, and prosecutors were required to share that type of information. The Supreme Court of Virginia rejected that petition in 2000, saying there was no evidence that Shiflett or Albright had ever met or knew of Elizabeth Hasem or her parents, and there was no physical evidence connecting them to the murders. But that was before the 2009 DNA report that suggested two unidentified men were at the Hasem house the night of the murders. And there is some evidence that they may have known Elizabeth. In 2018, former Bedford investigator Chuck Reed got a letter from a former volunteer at the homeless shelter in Roanoke, where Shiflett and Albright were staying after the Roanoke stabbing. The letter said multiple volunteers had overheard the two men talking about a, quote, rich bitch taking them to her house to meet her parents. Volunteers also spoke of the two men admitting to killing not one, but three people. There may be others who know more about what happened the night Derek and Nancy Hasem were murdered, including Tony Buchanan, who owned a transmission shop in Bedford County in the 1980s. There was a car towed to my shop. It was towed in by Bubba's towing. Buchanan spoke to attorneys for Yens in a recorded interview in 2011. He said a car was brought to his shop in 1985 by a tow truck. The car had been found in the woods, and the tow truck driver told him, it belonged to some college kids. Driver's floorboard, it was full of dry blood. There was blood all over the uh, floorboard. And there was a knife laying between the seat and the console. Okay, at that time, uh, I was really curious about it. The employees was asking what did uh, I think about all that. And I said it was probably some deer hunter up there that shot a deer or something out of season. Either that, they was up there growing marijuana. Buchanan said a few days later, a young couple came to pick up the car. Uh, my impression was it belonged to the gentleman well that was with her. We should, that gentleman was uh, a slender-built fellow. He was taller than I am. I'm five foot eight, so he was taller than I was. And uh, he had a highlight on his hair. And from my indication, the car belonged to him, and she was paying for it. Buchanan says she tried to pay with a credit card, but it was declined. He called the number on the card for a bank in Tampa, Florida, and a bank employee said they had stopped payment on the card. That's when Buchanan said the young woman got on the phone with the bank and said she was calling somebody in Florida. She called whoever it was she talked to on my phone. And then uh, about 30 minutes later, called the bank back, and the bank said it was all right, go ahead and run. So we ran the car, and it was okay, got the money. All right, they left. I was satisfied and everything until later. Buchanan said it was a month later, and he was reading a newspaper article about the Hasem murders and came across a picture of Elizabeth. I told the people in the shop, that's the girl was in here on that car. We was questioning about the blood and the knife in it. Buchanan said he didn't think much of it until he'd heard Jens and Elizabeth had been caught in England, and he saw a photo 
of yens. When seeing his first picture, when I seen his first picture, I said, well, that's not snoring. I mean, that ain't the guy I was here picking that car up. So then it got me in a, a, another frame of mind. Buchanan couldn't find the work order and said he didn't want to sound like a fool or a liar, so he kept it to himself for several years. But he called Yen's attorney, Gail Starling Marshall, in 1996, when she was in the news for the case. But he never heard back. And he also brought it up with Judge Sweeney at a local veterans meeting they both attended. And I confronted him about what I know and asked him the same questions about he could find out about the, the credit card and the people living in Florida. At that time, I asked him, did her brother or his brother lived in Florida? He said he thought they lived in Arizona. But Elizabeth did have a relative in Florida, an uncle, who was close to the family. And when Buchanan found that piece of information out in a newspaper article, he called Ricky Gardner, the Bedford detective, who was in charge of the case. And he more or less blew it off. He was just telling me he'd probably let go. When asked if he was sure he hadn't seen Yen soaring at a shop, Buchanan didn't hesitate. Definitely not. It had no resemblance to him, period. It was not. It was not the person that came with her when he picked the car up. If the woman Buchanan met in his shop picking up the car was, indeed, Elizabeth Hasem, who was the man with her and whose car was it? One name comes immediately to mind, Jim Farmer. He was the University of Virginia student from Lynchburg, whose family was friends with the Hasems. He's also the guy Jens says provided Elizabeth with drugs. Jens claims Elizabeth said she had to leave Washington, D.C. the night of the murders to deliver drugs to Jim Farmer. That night also happened to be Jim Farmer's birthday. But Amy Lemley, the journalist who interviewed Elizabeth after her arrest and who also knew Jim Farmer at UVA, doubts he was involved. I can say that I don't believe Jim Farmer had anything to do with this before or after. I did not like him particularly much because he was quite full of himself. He was a slight person. He was diabetic. He didn't seem like he could ever become violent. Would he have covered up for Elizabeth, for Jens, uh, I don't see why he would. We can't ask him, because Jim died in 2014 when he was 48 years old. His father, a former judge in Lynchburg, has said his son had A negative blood. None of the blood collected at the Haysom crime scene was A negative. There's another friend of Elizabeth's at UVA who spent a lot of time with Elizabeth in the days after the murders, her roommate Christine Kim. She traveled to Bedford with Elizabeth and Jens to attend the Hasem funerals. She also helped write an alibi. Elizabeth would later testify that she and Jens dictated their comings and goings down to the hour to Christine in the days after the murders to essentially get their story straight. Jens denies taking part in that. Christine confirmed to prosecutors it was her handwriting, but she said she doesn't remember who told her to write the original document or when it was written, and she has refused all interviews over the years. She's now a professor at Georgetown University, and we reached out to her. Sorry, Christine Kim is not available. Record your message at the tone. Hi, Dr. Kim. My name is Courtney Stewart. I'm a journalist in Charlottesville working on a podcast called Small Town Big Crime. We're taking a close look at the Hasem murders, and we're hoping to speak with you. Your name comes up in testimony, courtroom testimony, and 
We had a couple of questions that we want to make sure we have a chance to run past you. She didn't return the call. With Christine Kim refusing to speak and Jim Farmer dead, it seems like some of our questions may never be answered. But this is what we do know. The odometer of the car Yins and Elizabeth rented the weekend of the murders showed it had been driven close to 700 miles, which matches a trip from Charlottesville to Washington, D.C., then down to Bedford and back. The car had been luminol tested and had no blood inside, which contradicts Elizabeth's story of Yens pulling up in a car covered in blood. We know that Elizabeth said she hated her parents due to years of sexual abuse and that she was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. Recent DNA tests show two unidentified men left blood at the crime scene and no DNA belonging to Jens was found at the scene. A drop of type B blood, that was Elizabeth's type blood, was found on a dish rag in the kitchen near her mother's body. There was also the tennis shoe print in blood. It was too small to belong to Jens. Experts agree it was size six and a half to seven and a half woman's shoe. Elizabeth suggested to a journalist from The New Yorker that her mother must have stepped in her own blood. But Nancy Hasem wasn't wearing tennis shoes that night. In fact, she was wearing her night clothes. Described as a formal person, investigators believe Nancy was very comfortable with whomever was in the house that night. Jens had only met them once. And we also know that Elizabeth herself has admitted to giving untruthful testimony at Jens' trial. At the trial, she said Jens killed her parents because they didn't approve of their relationship. Then, years later, in 2016, she told a reporter that the real motive was sexual abuse. Jens' attorney, Steve Rosenfield, met with Elizabeth in recent years while preparing Jens' petition for pardon. And he says there's more evidence she wasn't truthful in her testimony. And there are 11 other lies that we have found between her sentencing testimony and the testimony she gave at the Soaring trial. Under mandatory parole, Elizabeth must be released from prison by 2032, when she's 68 years old. If she told a different story now, or offered to help investigators identify the two men who left blood at the crime scene, Steve says she could be opening herself up to perjury charges and more jail time. He says that's plenty of incentive for her to stay quiet. In early 2017, Jens was denied parole for the 12th time, even after the new DNA revelations. Jens said his lawyer was told at the time that the parole board needed to do an investigation. My lawyer spoke with the people in Richmond, and he told me that they said that they needed to do an investigation first to figure out which one of us was lying, me or Elizabeth Hayson. It's unclear what the investigation by the parole board entailed. It's largely done in secret. The parole board declined to release any information to us. And Yen's attorney, Steve Rosenfeld, says the lack of transparency is troubling. I talk about secrecy. What if the investigator now, in this case, finds something, reaches a conclusion, and we can show that it's demonstrably wrong? Well, we don't know what they found. We're not a part of that. If the, if the idea is to seek the truth, we could sign something making things confidential. They may have interviewed somebody that no one ever heard of uh, that we may be able to find uh, or, uh, that they lied or they're unreliable. Uh, and we, it's all just so secretive. We do know investigators with the parole board interviewed Sheriff Chip Harding and retired Detective Richard Hudson about their independent investigation into the case in 2018. 
and we know they interviewed Jens Soaring. We don't know if they spoke with Elizabeth Hasem or officials in Bedford County. But the biggest question mark goes back to the DNA. We don't know if any additional testing was done or if the DNA found at the crime scene was run against the DNA in Virginia's databank. When we interviewed Jens in October of 2019, we asked him if it made a difference, whether he was granted parole or given a pardon. It matters to me a hell of a lot. It really matters a great deal, okay? I, I, I've, I've had arguments with my lawyers about this. I've actually thought about turning down parole. Because I didn't freaking do this. I did not do this crime. You know, they've already taken 33 and a half years of my life. They've already taken away from me. And we're talking about right now October 2019. They've already, they've already taken away 33 and a half years. I want somebody to acknowledge what happened here which is that they locked up the wrong guy for 33 and a half years. I want, I want the state to acknowledge that they did a wrong to me. And, and if they release me on parole, you know, all they're really saying is, you know, we're letting you go, but we're not admitting anything. They need to admit this. About a month after our interview with Jens, the parole board in Virginia announced both Elizabeth Hasem and Jens Soaring had been granted parole. But Jens' petition for an absolute pardon was denied. The chair of the parole board released a statement saying, quote, The years-long exhaustive investigation for a genuine search for the truth revealed that Yen Soaring's claims of innocence are without merit. The parole board also noted that the Bedford County Sheriff's Office and the Commonwealth's attorney have, quote, at all times demonstrated professionalism, and we are grateful for their transparency during this lengthy investigation. The governor's office released its own statement saying, quote, Governor Northam has rejected Yen Soaring's request for an absolute pardon after thoroughly reviewing the case and the parole board's investigation. This decision is in line with the parole board's recommendation. The decision to parole Jens and Elizabeth at the same time was baffling to many journalists who covered the case for decades. We spoke with Amy Lemley a day after the announcement. When I heard the news of the parole yesterday, I had a visceral reaction. It felt as though they were being paroled together, which was just strange. We spoke with another journalist, Haas Spencer, the day after the parole announcement. He's done years of in-depth reporting on the case. That just smacks of of an inside deal because shouldn't parole hearings be independent of one another? Shouldn't Elizabeth Hasem be considered on her merits? And shouldn't Jens Soaring be considered on his merits? And so for them to both be released at the same time suggests rather strongly that some sort of political deal has been brokered. And, and I noticed also that there was in the governor's statement or the parole board's statement, I'm sorry, I forget which, support for the transparency and hard work of Ricky Gardner in Bedford and I didn't see a lot of transparency from Ricky Gardner. Pause questioned the transparency of the whole investigation. Transparency, you have Chip Harding, who's an elected sheriff in Albemarle County, begging and pleading politely of the Bedford authorities to please retest some of the other materials in their possession. I mean, I've seen the crime scene photographs where you see the big, thick droplets of blood on the countertop, which were apparently left by a perpetrator, not by one of the victims. There's so many materials from that 
crime scene that are still stored in Bedford, and Bedford has not cooperated. They said, we, we believe we got this case right, and we're not going to reopen it. So they're saying apparently they won't even test blood found at the scene against the state data bank. Speaking of Chip Harding, we saw him right after the news broke of Yen's parole announcement, and he held back tears. I'm ecstatic. I mean, what a great thing to have him. He's been locked up for 33 years for a crime that myself and other investigators don't feel like he was there. We don't feel like he was present when the actual murders were committed, as he's maintained, you know, since he went on trial. He's missed his 20s, his 30s, and his 40s, so it's time. It's time to let him go. But he said this announcement was bittersweet because he feels justice has not been served in this case. We believe that the evidence is pointing that other people participated in this homicide. If I was a resident of Bedford County, I would want the case reopened. One of the original investigators in the case, Chuck Reed, says he has always believed there was more than one killer at the Haysom home. It was more than one person there because it started off in the dining room and she ended up going one way into another room into the kitchen. He ended up going another way as, as if they were running from somebody. And because one person, Yen Soren, could be in two places at one time. And retired detective Richard Hudson agrees. The crime scene details suggest two killers. And I don't think the same person stabbed both those people because there's a completely different attack. You know, that's my speculation. When you look at the injuries, the bodies are completely different. Complete, two different Two different psychologies there. You've got 40 wounds to one and 10 to the other. Why don't they both have 40 or both have 10? It's a different type of attack, and it's a different kind of mentality of who, who does that. Shortly after the parole announcement, Jens was deported back to Germany. In the eyes of the law, the case is closed, and Jens murdered Derek and Nancy Hasem. As part of her parole agreement, Elizabeth Hasem was deported to Canada, where she has family and citizenship. The state and Bedford officials may consider the case closed, but there still are plenty of unanswered questions, like what happened to those two hitchhikers convicted of the brutal stabbing murder in Roanoke not long after the Hasem's deaths. And will Bedford continue to store the evidence in the case, or will they destroy it now that Elizabeth and Jens have been paroled? We'll be hitting the road to get some answers, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with the results of our own investigation. That's next on Small Town big crime. Hi, this is Courtney Stewart. If you're enjoying this podcast and appreciate our work, please consider supporting us on Patreon. This type of investigative journalism is labor-intensive and expensive. Rachel and I are working on a new case for season two, and we can't do it without your help. Check out our Patreon page, Small Town Big Crime. Hi, this is Rachel Ryan. When Courtney and I first started our podcast, we found the perfect place to work and network. Common House in Charlottesville. Now people in cities across the country and even around the world can benefit from a Common House membership. With other locations in Richmond and Chattanooga, Tennessee, thousands of creative types, entrepreneurs, and other professionals like you are finding a social club that helps them make new connections, both personal and professional. Each location offers gorgeous, comfortable spaces for conversation, quiet spots for working, and tons of planned activities that spark conversation and networking. A Common House membership also comes with global benefits. You'll get access to dozens of clubs around the world, from San Francisco to London to Auckland to Singapore. Don't just take our word for it. Come check out Common House yourself. And if you spot us there, say hello.